Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Self-driving technology is making its way onto America's roads. Companies including Lyft, Ford, and Google's Waymo are investing heavily to develop driverless vehicles and transportation services. Driverless technology is also being developed for the trucking industry, a cornerstone of the economy that moves 70% of manufacturer goods, yet finds itself challenged by rising fuel costs, safety concerns, and a shortage of drivers. On today's podcast, we'll look at the potential for driverless trucks to stake their claim on the nation's highways and create a more efficient transportation system. We'll also look at the potential impacts that vast fleets of driverless trucks may have on energy demand, air quality, and traffic congestion. And we'll discuss the choices policymakers face in balancing these outcomes. Here to talk about a driverless future is today's guest, Steve Aselli. Steve is a senior fellow with the Climate Center and a lecturer in the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Sociology, where he researches policy in the areas of energy efficiency and employment relations. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here. Now, Steve, so much of your work has been focused on the trucking industry. In 2016, you published a book, The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream, that chronicled the decline of truck driving as a profession. Tell us about your work on the trucking industry and your exploration of the future of trucking and self-driving trucks. So I've been studying the industry for about 12 years now. I started out uh, interested in the effect of uh, satellite-linked computers, which is a recent case of technology that's really uh, had a big impact on on the industry. And I wanted to know how that technology was going to affect the sense of autonomy that drivers had, which was something that was something it was that was supposedly bringing drivers into the industry. Um, you know, a desire to not have someone breathing over their shoulder at, at work and a sense of independence for blue-collar workers that you can't find elsewhere. And so that's what initially sparked my interest, and I spent uh, about six months or so training to become and then working as a long-haul truck driver to prepare for the rest of the research, uh, which included a lot of interviews with drivers about how they were thinking about the labor market and, and the kinds of jobs that they wanted in the industry. And that turned out to be something that um, not a lot of people had done. And I'd actually go out and talk to drivers at length and, and figure out what made them tick as workers and what they were interested in. Um, and it, you know, coincided with a time where there was a, lot, a big shortage of drivers and a lot of interest in turnover in the industry and, and how you could maintain a sufficient supply of, of, of labor. I thought that project was going to last, you know, five years or so, and um, and that I would move away from trucking and onto something else. And it turned out that there was a long history of economic regulation of the industry that was important, as well as some changes in in demand from big box stores and others that really uh, kept me working on a number of different problems. Some of which were around efficiency of moving freight. And I realized, I came to, to understand that the way that workers were treated in their jobs, the way that they were paid, uh, the way that their work was organized, really had profound impacts on a lot of other things that we care about, like congestion in our big cities, um, air quality in, in our cities, um, as well as our, you know, obviously our energy profile in terms of consumption of, of oil. And so I ended up you know, developing a couple of ideas around freight efficiency um, to try to think about ways that uh, changing the way that workers approached the job, were compensated, et cetera, um, 
could help to, you know, meet the goals of other stakeholders, in particular around issues of fuel efficiency and congestion. And so I, I began working in public policy around around issues of um, freight efficiency. And then I thought I was going to get out, and, uh, and then self-driving trucks happened. And so here we are. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> so, so looking at those self-driving trucks, um, this would focus specifically on certain types of trucks and certain routes. Can you tell us a little bit more about the vision of the self-driving truck? Yeah, so there's a, you know, there's a wide range of ideas out there still about sort of what these things might look like and, and what they, they might do. Um, but in the near term, I think it's becoming pretty clear what the challenges are and, and what the technology might be able, might be able to do, um, say, in the next 10 to 15 years or so. And, you know, you hear a lot about millions of jobs at risk and, um, you know, how these trucks might be able to displace, you know, two to three million, sometimes are the estimates that you hear, workers. Um, these trucks are going to be pretty limited in the near future, partly because of the uh, environments that trucks operate in and the kinds of work that truckers do around moving freight uh, beyond just driving. And so depending on, you know, what kind of labor process is there, whether they're handling maybe small parcels or a small shipment that's going to a mom and pop shop or a, a residential delivery or something like that versus a big box store or a distribution center, those are all going to set the driving conditions and other tasks that the driver's going to have to perform and so that would, you know, uh, determine what replacing that task of driving, which is all these trucks are really um, designed or being designed to do right now is, is drive. Um, it's going to, you know, determine what replacing that one task is going to mean for the overall process of freight movement um, in which drivers do much more than drive. And beyond that, right now, these trucks are really, uh, you know, people are envisioning them driving on the highways and not in urban areas. And this is also an issue, of course, with, with self-driving cars. Um, and this is really a matter of the complexity of that environment in terms of parked cars and kids bouncing balls and, you know, all the kinds of things that as a human driver you're aware of and take into consideration intuitively in, in many ways um, that the computers would, would have to also take into account, uh, as well as, you know, basic issues of road geometry, um, and things like that that make commercial um, and, in particular, interstate highways just a much easier environment for the technology to navigate. So, so this would be more appropriate, at least starting out for the highways, where you don't have to dodge uh, city streets and traffic and people crossing the streets. This would really be from one major metropolitan area, for example, to another. That's, that's the initial vision, if I understand correctly. Yeah, so there's a technical question of whether or not the, the vehicle can navigate the environment safely and reliably. And then there's the economic question of if you're just going to be replacing that driving task, is there enough of it there? to justify segmenting out, if you will, that task from all the other things that the driver's doing, meaning you get somebody in and out of the truck maybe, or even transfer a trailer between two different kinds of tractors um, to move that freight over a certain distance, you know, is it going to move far enough to make the economic case? Is it going to be profitable to actually automate that one task within that overall process of moving the freight? So you'd have to have a, a driver pick it up at a truck port, for example, as you've written about earlier, uh, take that the final mile or 10 miles or whatever it may be, and then you'd have a, the driverless truck again that would be a different cab or something that would take it the long, long haul. 
Yeah, and that's something that I, you know, an argument that I've been making for a few years around this concept of urban truck ports, as I've I've called them, um, which would be these, you know, drop lots outside of congestion congested areas in um, in cities, where an urban truck would come out usually, you know, or, or possibly, you know, before morning rush hour, in the middle of the day after rush hour, drop that trailer off. And then transfer it to a long haul truck, and this makes a lot of sense for um, f- for different reasons. So you'd have much greater fuel economy. Um, you know the kinds of fuel efficient technology that you want over the road when the truck's traveling at sixty miles an hour is very different from what you want in an urban area. You know you want that truck to be able to you know, have really good aerodynamics. Um, tires that are optimized for for that kind of travel and that's where your most of your energy losses are in that segment uh, on the urban side you know you have braking so you can have regenerative braking for an electric truck um, you can have you know something that's not burning any fossil fuels right so you could have much cleaner burning trucks which is really where we want that to happen we don't want to be burning diesel in urban areas where it contributes to childhood asthma and other sorts of problems so there are a lot of reasons why you know, uh, you want to do that on the fuel efficiency side. Plus, it gives you a, potentially a congestion management tool to, um, you know, keep those trucks out of, of those heavy traffic periods that you might have. And beyond that, it could make drivers' jobs a lot better because you might have regular routes where people can get home more often. You create more local jobs. And that idea has just dovetailed really perfectly with. Um, the capabilities that people see for self-driving trucks, which again are only going to be able to do that long-distance segment um, in the near future. So, so talk a bit, if you can, about the technology. Is this the same technology that you'd see in a um, self-driving car uh, right now? Same thing. So, there's a, a wide range of technologies that are that sometimes get put in this, um, you know, uh, category of self-driving or, or autonomous. So, you have uh, Peloton right now, for instance, which is working on platooning technology. It's uh, called adaptive cruise control. And essentially that is uh, a situation in which you have a human driver in that first truck. And then uh, at this at this point, just one following truck, but you could do it with multiple following trucks. And there's been a demonstration recently in, in Europe of this technology. And what's happening is you have a, you know, a human up in, in the front there that's making decisions about, you know, when to accelerate and brake. And then using uh, communication technology it is able to send, you know, that information to the following trucks, which are automatically, um, you know, following the lead of that of that lead that lead truck's decisions. So it sounds like we have multiple flavors of this, right? We have self-driving trucks, autonomous trucks. I've, I've seen things where, you know, some guy is in an in a office somewhere driving the truck, kind of like a drone from far away. I mean, what, what specifically yeah, yeah. we're talking about? Which one of these is going to be the first one really ready for market? Well, so platooning is, uh, could potentially be on the market within a year. Um, wow, fast. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's not really aimed at any kind of labor savings that because you're still going to have a human being there in that following truck who's actually responsible for lane maintenance. You know, so the only thing that's being controlled is the distance between the trucks through controlling acceleration and braking. So you're doing that entirely for fuel efficiency um, gains and they're and they're significant uh, uh, fuel costs. Uh, represent about a third of of total costs for most um, most carriers, and you can reduce those by you know four uh, percent for that lead truck, and then ten percent for the following trucks is is you know uh, the most often used 
estimate of those. Um, so that's you know one technology um, aimed at at fuel efficiency. Um, you could have truly driverless trucks, right, which are out on the road without a human being there, and are you know then made it up with a human driver at, as needed, you know, for that local driving. And then you could have self-driving trucks where you still have a human in the in the cab, and maybe that truck is performing, you know, that highway driving while the driver does something else in theory. Kind of like um, autopilot? Kind of, yeah, very, you know, a very sophisticated autopilot. Um, now, there, there are real big challenges to that. I don't, I don't actually see that as a, as a, a likely um, scenario in, in the near future, partly because you don't get that labor savings of, of taking that worker entirely out of the truck, and you're going to have a lot of regulatory issues around safety in particular about whether or not that driver is getting adequate rest or whether that time when the truck is driving itself should count against their work hours, which for anyone who's heard a little bit about the trucking industry in recent years, that's been just a, a perennial debate about um, how we should count workers' time and then uh, monitor that time and report it. Um, and these are big controversial issues that, have, that are taking now decades to, to resolve. So, so one of the advantages that you just hit on is that this would allow the trucks to be used more frequently for, for longer periods of time because it wouldn't have to wait for a driver to rest, for example. Yeah, so this is a huge um, opportunity for efficiency gains. Right now, the industry is really based on this, this model of you know, one truck, one driver, and that truck may only be running, actually moving, um, you know, on the road. Running is a trucker's term for driving miles, um, not not actually just idling or something like that. Uh, but that truck may be operating over the road, you know, seven, eight, nine hours a day, you know, um, on an on a, in a typical day. Uh, that's your biggest capital investment for trucking carriers, and you you have it sitting idle most of the day because somebody has to sleep in it. <laughs> and when you really take a step back and you and you look at efficiency issues in the industry, if you could run two shifts with a truck, um, which is which is done in some um, some segments of the industry and has been done historically, it's called slip seating, where you basically have two drivers assigned to the same truck, but obviously you know they have to be on regular fairly regular routes where those drivers can meet up and, you know, go back to a home terminal. Right now, most of the, the, the truck, um, truck drivers and, and carriers are going to be affected by self-driving. Uh, what they do is they go out for two to three weeks at a time in, in a random pattern around a large swath of the country, just going wherever the next profitable load takes them until, you know, the company decides they're ready for home time and then they, they send them back to their, their home park location. So it sounds like from the perspective of the trucking companies themselves, there's a lot of upside here, obviously, for efficiencies, as you just mentioned. Who are some of the, the big players in terms of the manufacturing or potential manufacturers of these trucks working on the technologies? And what are their, their economic incentives for getting involved? Yeah, so this is a big, uh, big set of questions about who's going to make these things, who's going to sell them, uh, and, and even who's going to own them, right? Because we... Um, you know, we if if we look out into the future, we see a you know really new, uh, complicated technology that's going to need to be serviced and maintained and and brought within you know an existing labor process that companies have been you know working with, you know with minor changes over time for decades. And so you know it may be that your traditional trucking carrier doesn't want to buy this new technology right away. They may be leasing it, um, and then you know we take 
a little deeper look at that. We say who's going to produce it. Um, well, you've got a whole bunch of software that's going to be needed, potentially maps that might be guiding the truck, things along those lines. Those might be sold by a third party to whoever is actually building the truck, right? Um, so you might see partnerships between, you know, a Silicon Valley technology company, for instance, um, and a traditional um, OEM, original equipment manufacturer in the, in the trucking industry. Um, now, there are lots of questions about how that how that's actually going to play out because there aren't a lot of units produced by the trucking uh, by trucking manufacturers in the, or truck manufacturers um, on a, an annual basis. You know, several hundred thousand. Um, so they 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 work very closely with the people who buy you know big chunks mm-hmm. of of that uh, of those trucks. And so they you know it's a very much a hand in glove kind of relationship about what that trucking carrier wants developed. Um, there's, it's not like car, uh, manufacturing where you may be trying to, you know, kind of manufacture new wants, if you will, by, and then, and then market them to consumers. They, there's really a tight relationship there. And so bringing in a technology focused third party from a Silicon Valley, we don't have, you know, uh, it's not exactly clear how that's going to play out. Um, at the same time, you have some, you know, obviously big and important com- companies in, um, truck manufacturing, but they're dwarfed in terms of uh, scale now by the capital available to some of these Silicon Valley companies. So you could imagine, you know, if you had a marketable truck, self-driving truck technology, um, you know, from a Waymo or an Uber or someone like that, they may just turn around and buy one of these truck manufacturers or, you know, so it could be partnership. It could be, you know, some kind of vertical integration will you know, we'll see how that plays out. Well, you just hit on, hit on one of the things I wanted to ask next. Now, you've been a consultant to some of these Silicon Valley companies, so obviously they see a lot of opportunity in this. From their perspective, is this just another technology area or area where they can implement technology and kind of find new opportunity? Yeah, so that, you know, self-driving trucks have really emerged as the, um, the most likely sector in most people's minds, uh, for early adoption of of self driving technology, even more than the Waymo taxis and, and well, ride Waymo, shares. Yeah, so Waymo has actually hinted at the fact that um, they may move into the truck space or, or are working on it, and there's some evidence that they may be working on it um, in a meaningful way already. And the reason for that is largely, um, you know, that combination of the technical capabilities of of the vehicle, you know, uh, being good at running highway miles and the economic case, right, that um, one, this is a business asset that you're going to want to utilize, you know, 24 hours a day if you could. Um, but of course, in passenger transport, you've got to you've got to transport the driver whether or not they're driving right and so the economic case for that um given the fact that that vehicle may not be able to navigate city streets um is not nearly as good most believe as the you know the case in trucking um and this intersects with the the interests of a lot of these trucking carriers potentially because of their difficulty in getting drivers to to into the industry and to stay in the industry, which, again, it's exactly those trucks that are going to be doing those long highway miles and go far from home. It's those are the hardest ones to keep drivers in because you're you know you're living out of that truck, breathing diesel fumes for 24 hours a day, sleeping in the back for weeks at a time, eating truck stop food, not seeing which friends. Which you and know family. from firsthand experience. Yeah, I can tell you, it's uh, it's not fun. I mean, there's you know there is a a, a rare breed 
you know, some call them strange birds <laughs> that, you know, really love the lifestyle. Um, but and it, it certainly has its rewards and, and, and a great bit of novelty, you know, at first um, and a lot of satisfaction. I mean, it's it's you know, it's it can be very satisfying work, but the the toll on your your social life, family life um, and health are, are really th- those they're enormous. And so it's a very hard job to do for a, a long time. Let me ask you this. Um, There are obviously a lot of advantages here in terms of efficiencies, as you've already mentioned. And it would sound like it would be more efficient from a a fuel use uh, perspective as well as, you know, potentially have some good environmental impacts based upon that. But there are some potential downsides. And this is where policy comes in and how policy may shape the future of the trucking industry, specifically a trucking industry that is – you know, Dominator has some percentage of it based on these self-driving technologies. Can you talk about some of those challenges and what the policymakers might think of, be thinking about at this point to, to, to navigate those problems? Well, so the, I mean, there are really two big categories um, right off the bat that, that we need to think about. And, and the first is labor uh, and, and the jobs that could potentially be lost. So, you know, it's not, if we go and look at the the number of drivers who are in operations where you have long, uninterrupted highway driving that are going to be likely targets for, um, you know, adoption of this technology. It's more like several hundred thousand drivers who are um, in those positions, not several million, as as some of the analyses have suggested. Um, given the demographics of the truck driving industry, and uh, they have tend to have older older workers and an increasingly uh, aged workforce, so you know there's going to be uh, fewer young workers who are displaced um, from jobs, say ten or fifteen years down the road. Um, in combination with the fact that you have this very high turnover. That um, is. I've heard three hundred percent in some companies. Is yeah, that- so in some at some points in time for for say independent contractors, uh, so owner operators who've bought their own truck, it's not uncommon to have you know an annualized rate of turnover that might hit three hundred percent in a quarter, something like that. Um, for the for the big companies that are bringing in lots of new inexperienced labor, a hundred percent turnover is kind of the the over under in the industry for whether or not you have really high turnover or just normally high turnover. Um, so you know again that means you know training a worker for each position in the company every every year, and that training uh, takes two to three months before you really get somebody out and operating uh, profitably for you. Uh, and the average worker is, you know, going to going to last about the typical worker is going to last about six months. And mm. so, you know, and then obviously you have workers who stay longer that pull that average uh, up to a, a year to have that 100 percent turnover. Um, so those those are going to affect how many, um, you know, displaced workers we have. And so I don't think um, we're going to have a lot of displaced workers with one exception that we need to think about. And, and those are workers who are in rural areas where truck driving represents a significantly better paying job than anything available locally. And so we may have some retraining issues for those, for those workers, maybe some issues um, around job transition, uh, extended unemployment, retraining funds, um, maybe even early retirement for, for workers who are in that situation. But I think ultimately we'll be talking or in the tens of thousands of workers. The bigger labor concern is really that 
as we break up these jobs into long haul and short haul, um, what we see in those labor markets today um, in for short haul versus long haul is a significant premium in terms of annual income for workers who are who are going out and doing that really tough job over the road. And so, um, you know, we're likely to see some some downward pressure on wages as we create more local jobs. And it's also in those areas in, you know, the the model that most people think of. Uh, is port trucking, um, which is, you know, bringing containers from from shipyards to rail or shipyards to um, distribution centers or right to final locations sometimes. And those jobs tend to have lots of problems with employee misclassification, um, long unpaid hours waiting, um, and a lack of uh, investment in, in equipment that means that oftentimes you have a worker who's you know, buying their own truck, and it's a truck that's come off the road after five or six years. It's got, you know, uh, six, seven hundred thousand miles on it. It's no longer your more efficient, cleaner burning truck, um, but it's cheaper. And that, and that misclassified employee, oftentimes working as an independent contractor, um, is not able to buy a, a more efficient, cleaner truck. And so we have lots of these dirty burning. Uh, older trucks operating exactly where we don't want them, which is in our in our congested urban areas around ports, and you know, in Long Beach and blowing it over to the east. Sure, and right area. down here in South Philadelphia. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, so those are you know the the big labor issue is not so much displaced worker workers as it is job quality and ensuring that those local jobs um, you know are are good jobs that you know. Um, you support a family, maybe whatever our criteria is going to be that we don't have lots of, uh, low paid minimum wage, sometimes below minimum wage, um, jobs. If that's an, uh, again, a misclassified employee who's not entitled to, um, protections as, as a, as an employee. And so those are the big labor issues, the big environmental issues. And they are, they're big, um, uh, potentially is, uh, a shift in demand. And so, you know, the potential from all of these, you know, wonderful benefits uh, of self-driving trucks, meaning, you know, uh, possibly a, a doubling of fuel efficiency on the long haul segments, which is not unrealistic. Because you're using the more fuel efficient, long haul specific trucks that you can't have today. Is that right? Yeah. And, and just to take a step back on that, because it's important for... Uh, for folks to understand that right now, you know, we can average the the national fleet is probably somewhere in the mid to high six miles, you know, per gallon range. Um, We now have trucks with all the latest technology ready to go pretty much that can, that could, um, you know, get 12 miles to the gallon, but they don't necessarily make economic sense because you're doing both that urban driving and that rural driving, and you're not going to get the return on investment. And it's very hard for companies oftentimes to really nail that return on investment down because they don't know exactly what their driving routines or what's called the duty cycle looks like. Um, And so, you know, segmenting that out again, might be able to double our fuel efficiency for that long haul segment, again, where it's aerodynamics, the rolling resistance of tires and and things like that. So we could probably double that fuel efficiency, which again is about a third of costs overall. Um, And you remove the labor costs entirely. First, you know, you're gonna have some transfer labor costs as you're moving trailers back and forth or something like that. So you won't capture all of that. But, um, you know, we could see a decline in rates for that over the road portion of, you know, 30, 40%, right? I mean, big, you know, that's going to, 
you know, be an incredible um, uh, reduction in, in rates eventually. And so what you're going to have is the potential for shipments that are now being brought by railroads over long distances now going on trucks because your typical rail shipment might go right onto rail at, say, the port of L.A., um, and then it's going to come off and then be hauled by a truck to its final location oftentimes. And so, you know, that might that final haul might be hundreds of miles, right? You might you know have something that goes on the rail at, in L.A., goes to Chicago, um, comes off the rail in Chicago and goes by truck to, you know, uh, Columbus or somewhere, uh, Columbus, Ohio or somewhere. So um, for a portion of rail shipments, it is going to make sense. It's going to be cheaper and potentially faster to just put that um, container on a self-driving truck just outside of L.A. and have it go right to Columbus, Ohio or or some other, you know, multitude of destinations. And so our, our big concern there is going to be that, you know, uh, trucks are way less efficient than rail per ton. And so we could have a big, we could have big efficiency gains per mile in, in what trucks can do, but we may see a, a, a significant increase in the number of trucks on the road. So what you're going to get there is, you know, more oil being burned by those trucks in the form of diesel. You're going to have more infrastructure wear and tear, um, and trucks do the vast majority of um of damage to our pavement, for instance, because of their higher weight per axle um, and greater congestion um, around around urban areas. Now, again, if we're looking at that model where you then transfer to a local truck um, and that local truck is, you know, an older beater, you know, um, then we've got more dirty burning trucks in our urban cores. And, you know, so we're kind of a lose, lose, lose um, uh, on the on the energy side, potentially, uh, if, if we don't have some way to, you know, shape that, that demand. You know, it, it's funny because as you're describing all this, it, it sounds like it's fundamentally in, in an odd way kind of out of step with the way that industry is increasingly looking at energy use. So this would allow more trucks to be used, even if they're more efficient trucks and the more efficient trucking systems that we have today. More trucks would be used, more fuel would be burned. You'd have potentially more concentration of air pollution in certain areas around these truck ports, for example, where the local load is passed to the long-distance load. And you have the traffic congestion that goes along with that as well. So as policymakers look at these problems, what can be done? And I, I bring it up you know, from the perspective of obviously this is a, a great business interest. Business is going to push for the efficiencies they look for. How do policymakers look at this and how do they balance kind of the, the larger common good with the very clear business interest that would be here? Well, for a number of reasons, this is, this is an enormous challenge. Um, the first of which is that there's a lot of uncertainty around everything I've just said. You know, what's, what's the pace of, of development going to be? Um, how soon do we have to act, for instance? Um, what is this technology going to look like? in terms of capabilities. And there's a, you know, whole range of, uh, of ideas about how best to overcome the existing or known challenges of this. Um, and th- so that creates a lot of uncertainty about, you know, uh, when it's going to happen, who's going to be able to adopt it, what it's going to cost, um, those, those sorts of issues. Uh, and it's, it's hard to have, you know, a constructive public policy debate when you have areas of uncertainty where um, our political process can allow, you know, different actors to come in with 
different experts and different, um, you know, arguments about what we should prepare for or be concerned about, et cetera. Um, and so th- I think we need to um, think a little more broadly about the processes that we're going to use to to think about the public policy issues. And I think that's absolutely step one. Uh, we need to think about, you know, who should be at the table, right? Um, this is going to affect everybody from your, you know, average urban commuter um, moving by, uh, by car uh, pretty directly, right? Uh, you're shipping uh, your local businesses who are, who are shipping and receiving goods, right? And the cost of being able to do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to potentially change the, um, you know, the cost effectiveness of distribution centers and warehousing and where those things are going to be located is going to change because of this. Um, and so this is, uh, you know, something that a term that uh, someone in uh, actually the policy director for Embark, which is one of the companies that's working on self-driving technology kind of, um, uh, told me about called the Jetsons fallacy, hmm. which I, re- I really like. And, uh, because it, it really does capture kind of the extent of these uncertainties. So, um, the Jetsons fallacy is that you can essentially take new technology and introduce it. Um, and people will continue to use it like they use the old technology. So you just kind of swap out, you know, one kind of phone for another and people will still use phones in a similar way. And you can think about George and Jane Jetson sitting around their house, right, um, at night in their nuclear family with their two cute kids, uh, basically oblivious to all of the scre- ubiquitous screens around them, right, and having this meaningful family dialogue and no one gets distracted by the if screens. They have flying right? cars and all they do is go back and forth to work with them, right? <laughs> so. That's right, yeah. I mean, and Jane's still, you know, uh, stealing George's wallet to, to sneak off to the shopping mall, right, um, sort of thing. So, um, and I, I think the important thing to realize is that when we, when we get this new technology, it's going to have transformative effects on the way that we move freight. And that's a really, you know, critical part of our economy. It's the lifeblood, you know, it's, it's the circulatory system of, of our economy. So you think about a Walmart right now, their system of distribution centers and their relationship to stores is based on the fact that you can get one human-driven truck out and back to that store from a distribution center in one day. And that was one of the insights of Sam Walton that he used to develop a very cost-effective transportation system, which is really the envy of of other big-box stores and has been an enormous source of competitive advantage for Walmart um, ever since Walton developed that first system. Um, now that you have a truck that can go twice as far potentially in a day um, and is not subject to hours of service, rules, et cetera, where are those distribution centers going to be located, right? Um, how are you going to um, you know, then organize your supply chain if you can now get things faster and cheaper from further away? Uh, now, this is going to collide, of course, uh, with e-commerce, right, and, and an increase in last-mile delivery um, that we want. You know, I think there's an endless appetite for we want it, you know, now and we want it free, <laughs> right? Which seems to be the emerging, uh, you know, scheme for for last mile delivery. Um, and so when we put all of that into the hopper, uh, we've got a bunch of changes that are going to have big impacts that are going to affect everybody and have lots of uncertainty. And so our our policy approach has to reflect that. And so I think we need something that can be responsive. Um, it keeps track of what's happening, right? Um, and then can respond to, 
you know, emerging trends and, and data that's, you know, well collected and, and, insight, and, and allows for insightful sort of discussions. Um, and we've got to have the right people at the table. And right now, what we're seeing in the self-driving space and, and debates is really, um, you know, focus on safety, which obviously is, is fundamental. You know, that's the, the initial hurdle is that these things have to not, they have to kill fewer people than, um, than human driven vehicles. Now for, for them, that's, you know, a very low bar. Um, we're actually seeing highway deaths, of course, increasing, which something Trucks we have a major cause of accidents. Is that right? Yeah, they are. And they're very expensive, um, accidents in, in terms of human, you know, consequences and money. Um, so that's a big, going to be a big driver. And a lot of the worst ones happen in, again, in sort of these long stretches of highway driving where drivers may be fatigued, um, fall asleep, lose, you know, um, lose their alertness. And, and so, you know, these high speed accidents result. And so, you know, this is, you know, an area where some of these less than autonomous driving technologies like lane maintenance, like collision avoidance, et cetera, that we're going to see in the next, hopefully in the next few years coming onto the market um, could save a lot of lives before we ever get to significant labor impacts or the kind of stuff that we're talking about. So we're um, in terms of, you know, environmental impacts, et cetera. Is the truck driver the future uh, tech worker or is he still a driver? Boy, that's a great question. So there's, <laughs> so there are a number of different scenarios. Um, one of them, for instance, is, you know, the, the big challenge with, um, with the software side of it is decision-making, right? Um, and so, you know, these would be very sophisticated algorithms or the outcomes of machine learning, et cetera, that are, you know, kind of cutting-edge AI right now. Um, what we can do a little more easily is um, have sensors obviously track, you know, something that's a known uh, entity in front of it, which could be the back of a, a trailer, right? So you could have something that looks like a platoon where you have a human in the front making the really tough decisions, but you have a bunch of drone units behind it, right, that are taking uh, where there's no driver um, at all. And so, you know, what happens to the job in that situation, right, is that you have much lower labor cost relative to what people are moving. You're going to have much greater value and productivity, right, um, from that one worker. And so you would think, all right, this is a situation in which we're likely to see upskilling, right, a more valuable driver who we want to retain longer, who's going to make better, um, uh, wages and who has the responsibility now for maintaining this this technology, right, or monitoring it. Um, and you've got and the body it. on the road in case there's a flat tire. Yep. And and to do a lot of things, and this is a big I I issue, you know, um, that people need to keep in mind. There's a whole lot of stuff that we can imagine automating that we wouldn't want to mechanize, right? So we can, you know, easily have the truck know, all right, you know, we're at the shipper's location, open up the trailer doors, but that's a whole, you know, that the computer deciding that it's an appropriate time to do that is very different from having a mechanism back there on that trailer that can, you know, successfully open those things when they're icy or whatever it is, mm -hmm. a bunch of sensors that ensure that they're properly opened and closed and secured, et cetera. And it just so happens that most of the companies who are likely to adopt this stuff have a trailer ratio of, to tractor of basically four to one. So they have a whole bunch of trailers that end up sitting in lots and go to customer locations and sit there for a few days. They're poorly maintained, you know, et cetera. And you're not going to put a whole bunch of expensive equipment and sensors on those things. Um, and so, you know, again, this is just one of those areas where understanding the labor process and sort of how the work gets done is really important for thinking about kind of the future of what, you know, this technology is going to be. 
in terms of adoption. Final question for you. Obviously, a lot of potential upside here, a lot of complexity as well. It's not just about trucks. It's about a lot of different things. When do you think we'll achieve a critical mass where truck driving, you know, self-driving trucks become reality, you know, really on the roads? When's that going to be? Yeah, so this is the, you know, the big question that everyone wants to wants to ask, and, and I ask it uh, <laughs> of others. So I'll, I'll tell you, I think, um, because I'm not, you know, the, uh, one of the technical people, um, you know, on this on this subject, though I, I'm very fortunate to be able to talk to a lot of them um, and even, you know, get to ride in, in self-driving trucks and things like that, which is which is a awesome experience. Um, you get a, a range of views, even within the same company. So, you know, um, and it, 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 I haven't figured out whether or not it lines up with a particular specialty yet. I haven't seen any pattern there. Um, I, you know, there are folks who, who think that, you know, within three years, we could have something operating over the road in a pilot, you know, sort of situation. Again, the driver's still going to be there um, and they're going to be demonstrating the reliability of this using, you know, real freight. Um, there is a program like this that Embark is working on right now, um, hauling actual freight in partnership with Rider, who's, you know, and, and it's Rider trucks and drivers who are doing that local segment, um, and they're collecting data, you know, on how well that those trucks are doing. They're mapping, they're doing all of the things that are going to help uh, push the technology forward. So potentially, you know, you know, the next couple years, two to three years, we could see something, you know, driving itself virtually all the time in a, in a testing phase. Um, and then from that point, it's going to have to be at least a few years of, you know, proving that they're reliable and, and, and figuring out how they're going to, uh, you know, fit into the larger organizations that, that trucking, you know, carriers are, um, and, you know, what that's going to require in terms of, you know, bringing stuff in-house, et cetera. Now, some of the area, some of the problems like snow, for instance, is, is going to, you know, perhaps persist as an, as an issue. Um, and so you may only see, you know, market penetration early in, say, the southwest. Oh, um, because it's first. snowing, it, it makes everything too many variables. Too right? many, yeah, can, you know, uh, mess with the sensors, um, the visibility that you get from the sensors of stuff far in the distance. And so this is one of the differences between cars and trucks is that you need to see much further down the road than you do with a car because that truck needs really 300 feet um, at least to, to make a stop at, at full speed. Um, and so, you know, there's sensor problems, there's hardware problems, there's computer science problems, um, all of which, you know, there are lots of people working on, um, which is another thing for folks to keep in mind around the policy thing is policy aspect of this is that, you know, this is a lot of this, you know, the vast majority of it has been developed using public funds, um, particularly driven by Defense Department interests um, through public and private universities. Um, a lot of people think of this as kind of a Silicon Valley technology that, you know, well, why would we get in the way of progress from these, you know, these private companies? But the vast majority of the work that's gone into the computer science and, and uh, sensor development, et cetera, that's being used has been going on at, you know, uh, universities and, and, um, and uh, you know, other kinds of uh, government operations and agencies for years, you know. So um, that's, you know, something to keep in, in mind. But I think in the next couple of years, you could see pilot projects. You may see, um, you know, real market impacts on sort of freight rates and things like that within 10 years. Mm. Um, and then full kind of, you know, um, penetration into that long haul market, 
you know, possibly 15 to 20 years. That's kind of my guess from just talking to people and thinking about sort of how long it takes trucking to really adopt new technology, which again, because they are dealing with 80,000 pounds of, of vehicle, um, you know, reliability issues where they're sending things out far away from their own mechanics for, you know, a million miles over the life of that vehicle, you know, that's not something you're going to, you know, just take off the shelf at, at lightly. You're going to really want to know that, that it's going to work. So obviously a lot of challenges, but big companies putting significant money into this, obviously a lot of people see a lot of potential here. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, the cost savings, the efficiency gains, you know, trucking has not seen, uh, you know, increases in productivity for a long time. <laughs> and so uh, there's there's a lot to be gained there. Um, and again, uh, you know, as I think about it, uh, you know, this isn't just a fad, you know, these are, this, this is decades worth of, of, uh, of technology and, and science development. Um, you know, the leading institutions of higher education in the world, um, the department of defense, and now being joined by all virtually all of the major car manufacturers, truck manufacturers, mm-hmm. uh, and the leading lights from Silicon Valley. Uh, if this if we don't get self-driving technology right, it won't just be the most overhyped technology um, in recent times. It'll be the biggest failure of of our, you know, science and technology uh, programs that, you know, in recent memory, because um, there's there are billions of dollars and thousands of, of really smart people working on this. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Steve, thank you very much for talking. Thanks, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Today's guest has been Steve Vaselli, a senior fellow at the Climate Center whose research focuses on transportation and its implications for employment relations and energy efficiency. And for more insights into energy policy and for updates on research and events from the Climate Center for Energy Policy, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy, or visit our website, climateenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening and have a great day.